RZIM's website about Dan. Dan Patterson is an itinerant speaker with Rabbi Zachariah's International Ministry based in Brisbane, Australia. Now, here's a couple of things you need to know about Dan. Given this background, his ministry... So he, he's gone through a, a journey, which we'll speak on probably a little bit later. But one of the things that's really stood out to me in getting to know Dan over the little bit in distance and then in recently a bit more while he's been visiting here and spending time with our family um, is his love for Jesus and constantly pointing people back to Jesus. Uh, now, Dan has completed a bachelor's and master's degree in theology in Australia, uh, but also he's travelled to Oxford to complete a one-year course at the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Um, Dan knows a lot of stuff, and one of the things I've really appreciated, though, he keeps it simple, uh, and he gets to the heart of what it ma- what matters. So I'm going to, ladies and gentlemen, can we invite? I'm going to invite Dan over. Say hi to Dan. Come up, Dan. Give him a round of applause. Great. I'm at, I've hung it's out now. I know you've got your backgrounds a little bit youth, young adults, pastor. Yeah, yeah. So after I came to faith um, and did some training, I uh, spent five or six years as a youth and young adults pastor at a church, and then uh, for the last five years been working with RZIM. Okay, so tell me a bit about your family. Who, who's in your family? Uh, yeah, well, my dad's here, actually. I uh, came down with three generations of guys. So my dad's here, and my oldest son, Josiah, come with me. But I've been married for nearly 10 years to Erin. Uh, she, if you ever need anyone to come and speak on suffering, having been married to me for nearly 10 years, she is an expert. Um, but she's a gem. Uh, she's at home with our other two boys. So Josiah's four and a half. Zach is just turned two. And then we've just had a new baby boy, Seth, who's a couple of months old. Okay, cool. Yeah. So being, you've had experience in youth and young adults past, so what I'm about to do is going to be totally easy Great. for you, right? So three, three questions, uh-huh. what comes to mind straight away? Okay. Ready? AFL. Carlton. <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually a Victoria born. I was here until I was four or five, and uh, so born in Carlton Hospital and been a Blue supporter ever since. Okay. Yeah. So I'm also well prepared to speak on suffering. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I don't know how that feels as a Hawthorne supporter, but um, what's the heckling going? Calm down, just just wait. We won't get you to speak on yeah, humi- humility anytime is... soon. Yeah, no, 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 thank you, thank you. Uh, um, Queensland, sun. Yeah, it's warm, it's fantastic, space storage, and cheap, could I put it that way? So yes. when I hear about house prices here, I freak out, and just uh, I'm glad I live in Brisbane. Yeah, I told my kids uh, today in the car that um, Dan and um, your, your family are all from Queensland, and uh, my first reaction from all three of my kids were like, whoa, and then my son, Elisha, who does reading and facts, he says, but Dad, it's a dangerous place. It's a very dangerous place. Is yeah. that true? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, so something no one or very few people know about me is uh, sometimes I gaslight in relocating snakes. So uh, for me and friends and networks and stuff, whenever they have a python, uh, I'm the guy that they call to really? come and take it away. Yeah. So I feel like that's another talk. If we know anything from reading the Bible, it's not a good idea to have a snake in your garden. Yes. So that should be something you should take and that's good. put somewhere else. That's yeah. good. Well, with that transition, I'm going to pray for you Great. and pray for us. That was two questions. I know. You but said I, three. I, I, you can't think of a okay, third, can I, you? No, I can't. I'm actually glad because the last question in youth ministry is always something a bit you know. I was going to go there, but yeah, then I thought I'm glad I'm you did not, so I'll stop. Yeah, good, yeah, good, one. Okay? good filter. We're good? Yeah. yeah, good. All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for my brother Dan. I thank you for the privilege that we have um, to work in ministry together, but also um, in this moment, this morning... We're expecting you, through your word, 
through your spirit, through your servant Dan, to speak. Lord, I know there are people here in, in different seasons of life, whether if we're people who are exploring or, you know, uh, giving our lives to you, whether if you're right in the midst of uh, trial or we're not um, even sure what's ahead of us. Where are we at? Would you speak to us? Pray for Dan. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd empower him, that you'd use him uh, to point us to Jesus in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ben. Well, a huge thanks to Shabu and, uh, and his family, particularly his parents, who have been uh, hosting us over the weekend as we've been here. I got to speak on Friday night to a bunch of parents and, uh, and grandparents just exploring how do you help raise kids in the skeptical and digital age that we're in. And then last night, again, uh, just a different theme on how is it that we can talk meaningfully about Jesus. But um, this morning, uh, I really wanted to come and wrestle with one of the bigger questions that I'm asked everywhere that I go, both by people who believe in God and in Jesus, by Christians, as well as by people who are secular and still trying to make sense of whether or not God exists and fits into their picture of life at all. And so I'll introduce that in a moment. Uh, I work with a guy named Ravi Zacharias. I work for him. Um, He's a little bit of a giant in my eyes and I'm just hugely appreciative of the opportunity to be on that team. But I've been doing this for about five years and the tagline of RZIM is helping the thinker believe and helping the believer to think. Really, the two arms of what it is that I spend most of my time doing is going into universities and schools and business networks and different secular public forums to be able to talk about why I think the deepest questions that we're wrestling with as a culture actually connect with the Christian story in really powerful ways and why Jesus is good news for everyone. As well as then coming into environments like this with Christians and churches and being able to explore how is it that I can work through my own doubts and my own barriers and then my Christian faith, as well as how is it that can I can talk about Jesus with my friends and family, given that they have so many hard questions. And so do a little bit of something called apologetics, which is learning to give an answer or to be ready to give an answer, to commend and to and defend the Christian story. But this morning, uh, in uh, where Jesus invites us to love God with our minds, our whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength, I really want to lean into what is a really tough question for many people, and it probably connects with each of you in a different way. And I've simply phrased it this morning, where is God? Because anyone who has believed in God for any extended period of time tends to share one thing in common, and that's disappointment. Because it seems that having a relationship with an omnipotent and omnipresent God isn't always what we imagined it to be. Perhaps you found yourself asking some kind of question like this, why don't I feel my faith anymore? Why do I feel lonely if God is meant to be with me? Why hasn't my life turned out how I hoped. Or perhaps in the language of C.S. Lewis, when he's talking about his own doubts, why does it feel like my prayers are posted to a non-existent address? Now, it seems to me that part and parcel of the experience of God's presence and knowing God is also often the experience of God's absence, what we might call dark nights of the soul, these periods of life where you feel the very moment you need to feel and experience God the most is sometimes the very moment where God seems absent or heaven seems silent, that God is nowhere to be seen. And this is a huge source of doubt. Now, what's interesting about this experience of a dark night of the soul, perhaps dark weeks or months or years of the soul, is that this experience is not foreign to the pages of the Bible. 
Because again, precisely at the moment where people cried out to God, all throughout the biblical story is precisely the moment where in their experience, God seems to be hidden. Take someone like King David. He was a man well acquainted with grief and with sorrow. He'd lost children to sedition, to sickness. And so here is a man with a soft heart and yet often given to these bouts of doubt. In one moment in the dark night of the soul, here's how he opens in Psalm 10.1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And David's experience, it's not some isolated incident either. If you read through the stories of Job or Jeremiah or Jonah, they all have their own questions for God. This confusion, a disappointment. Take it from the lips of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 15. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God, of Israel. Even Jesus and Paul in the New Testament speak of a sense of God's distance or of despairing of life itself. God doesn't answer their prayers in the way that they wanted. And this experience is what theologians refer to as deus abscondus, that God seems to hide. And it's one of the biggest objections to Christianity, posed not only by those who don't believe in God, where is God, but also by those who do. You see, many skeptics, many seculars will argue that the kind of evidence for God, it's just not good enough. If God really wanted us to know him, then he should have done a better job of making himself known. If he really wanted us to believe in him, he should have made his existence more believable. And think about their objection. God could easily tear open a rift in the sky and appear on live television to everyone everywhere. Or he could write my Facebook password with stars across the night sky just to prove that he exists to me. Or he could have genetically stamped made by God onto the base of our feet like Andy in Toy Story rather than just some import from China. Or perhaps even just privately. At the very least, he could show up in person to talk to us when we're going through a hardship, the same way he did to a few people in the Bible. I mean, Morgan Freeman at least did that with um, Jim Carrey. And so for a whole host of reasons, many people, whether seculars or Christians, they come to the point where they feel that God's hiddenness means he either isn't there or perhaps he doesn't really care. So that's the question this morning. Why does God hide? Why isn't God more obvious? Now, I want to actually begin this exploration by pushing back a little bit on the premise of the skeptical or secular side of this question. Because in truth, I'm not all that convinced that in some way God hasn't made himself obvious. Now, long before the stand-up comedians of new atheists of our time, like Bill Mayer or Sam Harris, who like to take the mickey out of God or say that belief in God is the same as belief in Santa Claus, back in the 20th century, one of the figurehead atheists went by the name of Bertrand Russell. He was a British intellectual taught at Oxford, and in one interview with the journalist Leo Roston, um, Russell was asked, let's say you're wrong, hypothetically, and you stand before God on Judgment Day. What are you going to say to God about why you're an atheist? And Russell's answer was quintessentially British. He says, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? At least he had the sir part, you know, kind of a respectful title. Now, perhaps you're here today, and this is actually a little bit how you feel as a secular or skeptical person. But 
even if it were true that 100 years ago the case for God was weak when Russell was the height of his academic career, and I don't think it was, you may be surprised to hear that the landscape, academically speaking, has changed significantly even from Russell's day. Take the realm of scientific discovery. A century ago, it was popularly believed that our universe was eternal. Bertrand Russell considered it just a brute fact. The universe is there, and that's it. And the reason why a cosmic beginning was so strongly resisted by secular intellectuals was because to admit that our universe had a beginning, well, that allowed a divine foot in the door. It sounded suspiciously what the Hebrews have been claiming for thousands of years, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then subsequent predictions and models and discoveries, whether it was the general theory of relativity by Einstein or George Lemaitre and the calculations he worked from as a Catholic monk to be able to predict the past history of our universe, or Edwin Hubble and the use of his huge telescope to be able to observe the red planetary shift as other heavenly bodies were expanding outwards from us. All of these discoveries led to a revolution in the scientific community, such that by the end of the 1950s, middle of the 1960s, it was a near scientific consensus that our universe came into existence out of nothing at some finite point in the past. But this virgin birth of our universe, this contingency required some kind of explanation. So too then did the incredibly fine-tuned universe the idea that the initial conditions of our universe were profoundly calibrated to be able to allow for intelligent life anywhere in the vast reaches of our universe. It is these discoveries that have led many agnostic and even atheist scientists to tip the hat and say that our universe at least appears designed. Because of this, Neil deGrasse Tyson now says that it is probable that we exist as some complex computer simulation, that we really are in the matrix, so to speak. This is the shifts in the scientific realm. Or take what we know about our own nature through the human sciences. Study after study shows a strong correlation between religious devotion and well-being, especially in places where Christianity is culturally dominant. In fact, in discussing the data on Sam Harris's podcast recently, an atheistic economist and philosopher and physicist, that's quite a role to be able to play. This guy is way too overqualified, a man named Robin Hansen. Here's what he said, and I quote, religious people are just better off on pretty much all of our standard metrics. They live longer, they earn more, their marriages stay longer, they have less crime, they're healthier. Everything goes better for religious people on average. And that's a real puzzle if you think they're all just making a big mistake. You see, it seems that the Christian story, Christian community, it actually fits the contours of the human soul in a way that leads to flourishing. Or take the hallowed hall of philosophers, uh, the the profession in which um, Bertrand Russell is a part. A century ago, Friedrich Nietzsche announced that God is dead in philosophy. The secularization thesis held that the more educated people became, the less that they would believe in God. And yet, amongst a recent gathering of secular philosophers, the award-winning atheist philosopher, Quinton Smith, he lambasted his colleagues for losing too much ground to theistic philosophers over the last 50 years. 
In fact, the philosophical arguments for God's existence right now are stronger than they have ever been in history. And Quinton Smith traces it back to the influence of men like Richard Swinburne or Elvin Plantinger, who have led a revival of belief in God, such that 25% now of positions in philosophy in top-flight secular academic universities are held by believers in God. Now, these men, amongst a myriad of others, are influencing new generations of philosophers who are taking the world by storm. Or, finally, take the Gospels in the New Testament. You see, a century ago, the German school of liberal theology effectively owned the New Testament field, and it was popularly believed that the Gospel sources were legendary material, that it was all made up, it wasn't really reliable. But that thesis now is incredibly weak. Why? Because a mountain of new data from the relevant fields of ancient history and archaeological studies and textual analysis, all of this now supports that there is much by way of the eyewitness status of the testimony in the Gospels. We know that the people that told these stories were really there to know the fleshy details that you couldn't have known if you were a third or fourth hand. We know that these people were of honest character and that they had a lot to lose by every meaningful metric if they falsely reported what they saw. Their willingness to suffer for their testimony, with no historical hint of any of them recanting the claims about Jesus, it substantiates their own genuine belief in what they saw. So the claim that God has made himself known in history in Jesus Christ, the invisible God becoming obvious, I think that's a claim for which you can mount an incredibly strong historical argument. Not to mention the strength of the argument just purely for the resurrection of Jesus. So what's my basic point? You see, I'm not convinced that God hasn't made himself obvious in one sense. That there isn't a wealth of evidence that we can explore. The more that we learn about ourselves and our world, the more that we see God's existence just bleeding through. And there is literally a universe of evidence available for those who want to look into it. Perhaps this morning you're here as a secular person and you just haven't taken those steps to investigate whether or not God exists and whether or not you can reliably trust in Jesus. And so I offer this just as a teaser to be able to get you to start that exploration. But still, having seen all the evidence, people like Bertrand Russell still exist. And for even those who believe in God, who believe in Jesus we still often struggle with doubt as God just has this acute sense of absence sometimes in our lives. So the picture is way more complex than just is there evidence or isn't there evidence. God's hiddenness, according to the Bible's big story, has to do with a couple of things. It has to do with our response to his presence and it has to do with God's chosen absence to serve our particular needs. And it's these two things that I want to parse out this morning as we look into the big story But to do that, to explore why God hides, we actually need to think for a moment what we mean when we talk about God's presence and God's absence. And the best breakdown I've come across comes from a a pastor, a spoken word artist by the name of David Bowden in his book, When God Isn't There. And he talks about four different ways in which God could be present or absent. First, there's God's general presence. The Bible speaks that God is everywhere. If I go to the top of the mountain, you're there. If I go down to the depths of Hades or Sheol, you are there. God is everywhere, his general omnipresence. But then there is a visible presence of God, something that's revealed to our senses, whether a burning bush or a voice from heaven or a cloud or a pillar of fire. 
Third, there is God's relational presence. This is what is promised to those who come to believe in Jesus, that God comes to dwell within us by his spirit. And fourth, there is God's actual presence, where people can come face to face with the glory of God. And what I hope you'll see as we walk through the Bible is that the kind of God's presence that maybe we want right now, it's not always the kind of God's presence that we actually most need right now. That God's hiddenness, far from being a sign that he doesn't love us, in many ways God's hiddenness is precisely because he loves us. God's presence and God's absence are actual intentional acts of a God who is so big and so good that only he knows when and how we need to experience him and his answers to our prayers. So in search of answers as to why God hides, I just want to explore with you this morning three biblical scenes. The Garden of Eden in Genesis, Gethsemane and Golgotha in the Gospels, and finally the Garden City as it comes down in Revelation. So let's start with this first scene, the Garden of Eden in Genesis. The Bible begins with a beautiful friendship between God and humans. It describes that we were created for good. And just like those who say they experience God in nature, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were said to have walked with God in Eden's garden. We were made for God. We were made for presence. We were made for intimacy, to talk face to face with God. And this kind of relationship is exactly what describes the contours and longings of our soul. But something happened to fracture this picture of friendship. The Bible calls it sin. In the modern world, we might call it evil. The twisting of our freedom, where rather than using our freedom to treasure God and to trust his moral boundaries, that they would serve our good, instead we traded our friendship with God for an illicit pleasure. Genesis chapter 3 describes this moment that theologians call the fall, where human beings fell from their high calling to reflect God, to image God, to fulfill our purpose in the world, and instead falling, crashed into the moral reality of God's universe, whereby we became broken. And where once humans could completely be open before God and open before each other, in Genesis 2.25, it speaks of being naked and unashamed. Think of the metaphor that profoundly lies behind that. Now, in Genesis 3, the story describes that we, human beings, we were the first to hide We did so behind fig leaves and fern bushes. You see, humanity started hiding long before God ever felt distant. And in reaction to human evil, God absconds. He leaves. Where once he walked with us in the cool of the evening, now no more. And the profound feeling that all of us have innately, deeply, that something has been lost, that sense of loss is testament to the truth of the Bible's big story. You don't feel the loss of something you never had. You don't feel the loss of something for which you were never ultimately designed for. But why did God abscond? Why did he hide? Well, separation from God's light and life and love is part of the penalty of evil. The Bible says the wages of sin is is death. It's the cost. But God's hiding from us is as much an act of protection and mercy and hope as it is one of punishment. Well, Dan, what on earth do you mean by that? Well, biblical authors and writers often think of God's holiness, something like a source of incredible light, perhaps even the sun, a ball of raw energy 
Anything that isn't like the sun and seeks to come near it, well, it's destroyed. Wood, hay, straw, steel, all other substances melt away and are consumed by it, which is precisely why the Bible speaks of God's consuming fire in Hebrews 12.29, or that he dwells in unapproachable light in 1 Timothy 6.16, or that no one can look upon God's face and live in Exodus 33.20. You see, the claim of the Bible is that no one can, in our broken, evilly infected human selves, stand in God's actual presence without being killed. In fact, heaven right now would be as hell for anyone who stands before God without first being made a new creation. And so God's actual presence absconds. The earth experiences the absence of his presence, and he did this. God hides to make it possible for us to come close again one day. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.9 says that God staves off his return in glory until such a time as you and I can be forgiven and changed, experience repentance and renewal. And so just from this image in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, we get something of a window into why we feel this divine absence. One reason why God hides. But what about scene two? The image of Gethsemane and Golgotha in the Gospels. Because this is where we see Jesus arrive. Enter Emmanuel, God with us. God come near as we begin the Advent season. For centuries, God had kept humanity at arm's length with little hotspots of his presence reserved for mountaintops and temples. God's presence had a physical location. You had to go to a place, a building, and there were walls and a veil that served not to invite you in, but to keep you out. No one could peek behind the veil. But Jesus claimed to reveal God's intentions towards us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And Jesus spoke about God's kingdom, his rule, his presence again, coming near The promise of God's actual presence returning to earth to dwell with us forever. And yet, even as Jesus spoke about these things, he himself was subject to dark nights of the soul, to unanswered prayers, or at least prayers that weren't answered in the ways that Jesus hoped. Jesus experienced the hiddenness of God. You see, at Gethsemane's garden, Jesus prayed to avoid agony, so overcome with the weight of what he was about to experience, as we often feel in life. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane seemed to bounce off the sky. No voice boomed from heaven this time. And Jesus wasn't delivered from the excruciating suffering of Easter. He died. Far from it, in that moment of crucifixion, he experienced divine distance. We're told that about the sixth hour, roughly midday, the heavens go dark, And Jesus cries out in dereliction. It must have been such a guttural cry that echoed in the minds of the eyewitnesses because it's one of the few phrases that is not translated into Greek but merely transliterated from Aramaic. It rang out in their ears. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about that for a moment. The Bible records an experience of darkness where God questioned God. And so here we see again divine silence has nothing to do with God's 
love for us. See, rather the opposite is true. God the Father loves Jesus the Son in a way that we cannot possibly capture in words. And yet, from our perspective, he's abandoned. But only until Easter Sunday, where what originally looks like defeat, what looks like things not playing out as they should, is dramatically reversed at the resurrection. And there we learn in a paradoxical way that things unfolded precisely as God had planned. And we see a picture of perhaps why it is that God sometimes remains silent. That God hides to achieve some greater good through our painful experience of distance and through the confusion of darkness. Because it was through Jesus' death that God would purchase atonement for whosoever believes. It was through Jesus' resurrection that God would offer eternal life to whosoever believes. God is big enough to use Jesus' dark night of the soul to bring about a greater dawn for all of humanity. And what's more, through this Gethsemane moment in Golgotha, we learn that you and I, we're not alone in the darkness and we're not alone in our sufferings. That for those who believe in Jesus, we follow a good and true and chief shepherd who has himself gone through dark nights of the soul. In fact, he's gone through the very valley of death. And because he knows the darkness that we're in, because he has experienced the feeling of divine distance, and because he is the perfect display of God's love and goodness, we can trust him when we can't make sense of it for ourselves, when we can't see through the fog and through the valley. We can trust his voice, that he's able to lead us out the other side, even if that involves us going through death ourselves. And because of Jesus' death, we we too can be filled with God's relational presence. The Bible says there's no more need for tents and temples, no more walls, because God can come to dwell within us by his spirit. That for anyone who believes in Jesus, you can become that kind of new creation. You can become a little Wi-Fi hotspot of God's heaven on earth. But even this doesn't chase away all of the shadow of Genesis 3. Even to believers, God is often hidden. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul would say, we see through a glass dimly, with a deep longing that one day to see him face to face. So let's go there. Scene three, the garden city in Revelation. For the final three chapters of the Bible, they describe Jesus' return and the beginning of forever. And the scene is pictured twofold, as a courtroom and as a wedding. And the question is, which of these two will most define us? Because at the judgment, all those who hold on to their fig leaves and ferns, all people who would rather cling to their evil rather than to cling to Jesus, it describes that they are exiled from God's future world. God is coming close to make all things new. And the power of his actual presence in the imagery of revelation, of his actual presence, is set to replace the sun itself. In its power, nothing sinful can stand. And so the end of God's hiddenness spells out the end of the evil that corrupts God's good creation. But for Christians, for those who have chosen to step into the light and come clean with their evil, they've been forgiven and made into a new creation through Jesus. And so this return, it actually heralds a great celebration. 
The human metaphor of marriage becomes now merely the obsolete trailer for the new coming feature film, the eternal marriage of Jesus and the church as his bride. And what makes the new heavens and the new earth paradise? It's not like many other religious beliefs, simply the abundance of physical pleasures. Rather, what makes it paradise is the relational presence, the intimacy of being face-to-face with God. That's the kind of relationship that you and I were designed for where every atom of our resurrected bodies is flooded with God's glory. And it's an experience that cannot be described now in words. But if the future is Jesus coming back for a bride that has been made ready for that day, then what describes our current interval? See, right now is not face-to-face. It's looking forward to that moment. Right now is not being married. It's a season of engagement. And for anyone who's been engaged, that season is one that's marked by intense longing. Where the closer and closer you draw towards God relationally, the more and more you wish there was an unmediated presence, a marriage. Now this is something of, let's say, the 30,000 foot overview of what the Bible teaches about God's presence and absence from Genesis to Revelation. And the reason why I think it's necessary actually just to zoom out and to bring in the sweep of that big biblical story is the problem with the dark night of the soul. You tend to not be able to navigate where you're going. The lighting is really bad. And it's hard to know in that moment with our fallen feelings and our finite perspective, we need to be reminded of that big picture. We need someone and something to give us perspective. So let me draw out from this story in the last couple of minutes that we have just a few of the reasons as a recap as to why God may seem hidden and offer a bit of a way forward if you're feeling a bit spiritually lost. Reason number one, God seems hidden because you're hiding, not him. In Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul says that even though God has made himself known obviously in creation and in conscience that we can suppress that truth. Jesus said it is possible to prefer the darkness to the light because we want to keep doing things in darkness. Every single one of us possesses an incredible capacity for motivated reasoning, for wanting a certain thing to be true and therefore denying all evidence to the contrary. So could it be that God may seem hidden to us because our own desires and way of living right now are obscuring obscuring the truth about who God is and how he feels towards us. Even Christians can experience God's sense of absence because of sin. Sin obscures our sense of God. It numbs our spiritual longings and feelings. It sears our conscience. And perhaps God hides for a season. He doesn't return in full glory because he doesn't want us to stand judgment. He wants us to learn that nothing else will ultimately make us happy. He gives us over to the pursuits and our desires just to realize that that ultimately doesn't satisfy in order that we recognize the true source and therefore the true fulfillment of our deepest longings. And so if you're hiding from God, please listen for a moment. You are profoundly loved, irrespective of anything that you've ever done or currently doing. God loves you on your worst day. And the testimony of the cross of Jesus Christ is that he knows you to the depths and yet still loves you to the skies.
So if you're hiding from God, please turn and come home. Give up on the fig leaves and ferns and come clean. Reason number two, though, why God may seem hidden is that God hides in order that we can become heavenly rather than hellish beings, that he may train us to assume our eternal job. Uh, God does not act like Jim Carrey in Bruce Almighty by answering yes to all our prayers and immediate desires. Rather, he is committed to giving us what we need, not what we want. We get the kind of presence of God required, not the kind of presence of God desired. And what God is committed to doing in your life and mine is making us ready to enjoy his presence and ready to fulfill our final vocation. Now, what is that vocation? Well, the Bible says that we're all to steward creation as gardeners and governors of God's garden city. Your future is to rule and reign with Jesus. You'll be heaven's ScoMo or Queen Elizabeth or Donald Trump, but hopefully different in character to perhaps all three. But what is it that actually makes for a great statesman? What is it that makes for worthy rulers? Surely that has something to do with crafting certain kinds of virtues within us, like faithfulness and humility. Surely it has something to do with building a profound knowledge base of the relevant fields of expertise. Surely it has something to do with the moral and intellectual training that we will require to be those kinds of people. The Bible says that we have to be made to be like him as far as finite beings can model infinite love, wisdom, power, and knowledge. And so that's what he's committed to doing in this engagement period, making us a bride made ready. God is committed to making your eternal self reality. So if we want to understand God's actions, we need to understand, in the language of Marvel, God's endgame. It was Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, who said, we must interpret life backwards in order to rightly live it forwards. And if you know that God is committed to getting you ready in character and calling for your eternal vocation, then that changes the calculus, it changes the math. All of a sudden, like the New Testament teaching about how trials are a furnace that refines us, the dark nights of our soul, the supposedly unanswered prayers, experiences of divine silence and God's hiddenness, all of these actually are co-opted by God to serve as part of our training, part of our preparation. And I think about that when I parent my boys. You know, they would love it if at every moment of the day I carried them whenever we walked anywhere. Now, it's tiring as anything for me, carrying heavy four-year-olds and two-year-olds. But that would be their desire, that daddy be that close and that it would be that easy. But I'm not helping them become the kind of big people that they're meant to be if I do everything for them. I have to give at times the kind of distance, sometimes even hide from them, in order for them to practice and learn the kind of skills that they need to grow in confidence and grow in capacity, to step into their future selves. And if I do that as a broken and fallen earthly parent to my kids, how much more does our Heavenly Father know precisely when to do that? But this is the major challenge. Will we really believe that God is bigger and better than us? Can we accept that even when something seems obvious to us, that this should be the thing that God can do, if we actually had God's perspective, if we were able to see through the corridors of time, that that may change the math? Can we accept that God might have good reasons for not giving us 
what we think we need that you and I just can't see yet. Because I get the sense when I read the Bible's big story that this is precisely what's happening again and again and again. Jacob to his brothers. Joseph's to his brothers, sorry. That which you meant for evil, God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. But that was 15, 20 years later. Perhaps it won't be till the other side of eternity before we even get a glimpse as to why God is doing this now. Reason number three, and I'll finish with this. What kind of relationship does God want with you? I think the third reason why God hides is because he wants you to seek. It would be easy for God to make everyone believe that he exists. But simply believing that God exists does nothing to engender the right kind of response that he wants. Deep and meaningful relationship. After all, even the demons believe that God exists. But that knowledge only hardens them towards him. It doesn't soften them. So God has chosen to reveal himself in a way that actually serves his goal of making us become seekers. Take this from one of my favorite authors, a 17th century scientist and philosopher, Blaise Pascal. He writes, It was not then right that Jesus or God should appear in a manner manifestly divine and completely capable of convincing all men. But it was also not right that he should come in so hidden a manner that he could not be known by those who would sincerely seek him. He has willed to make himself appear only to those who seek him with all of their heart and to be hidden from those who flee from him with all of their heart. He so regulates the knowledge of himself that he has given signs of himself visible to those who seek him and not to those who seek him not. God is not interested in proving his existence to people who don't want him to exist and so circumvent their freedom to disbelieve. But God is interested in making you and me better lovers. And so since seeking out the other person for their good is a huge disposition of love, this is how God is committed to making us better lovers, which is why he has ordered the universe as a cosmic game of hide-and-seek. God promises that to those who seek him with all their heart, he will be found. And God promises to those who seek him not, he will remain hidden. He doesn't say how long you have to seek him. Weeks, days, months, years, decades. But here is something that I think he's always doing. In the seeking himself, in the seeking, he's building us to have an eternal hunger for which we were ultimately designed. The response to all of this is simple. Where God seems hidden and where prayers seem unanswered, it's to do exactly what David did in Psalm 22. As he wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes on to remind himself, although the present moment of God's hiddenness is real, in the past, God has always turned up for his people. David begins to speak to his soul. And by God's story feeding in, he gets perspective as to what it is that God is doing, even in the darkness, even in the silence, right now. And he turns his questioning to hungering after God, to seeking after God. Because here is the promise of the Bible. God will always be found by those who seek. Whatever dark night you're in, eventually, perhaps with the resurrection, it will finally dawn. And the eternal day that's coming for those who seek after God is brighter than anything that you or I have ever imagined. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, it is a gift that you have not left yourself without testimony, but that everything in creation conspires to point us towards you. The longings of our heart, the pangs of our conscience, the beauty, intricacy of nature, the annals of history, all of it points towards you. And we thank you that you have made yourself known to us because you want us to know you, to respond in love as earthly kids to our heavenly Father. But Lord, I want to pray for those who right now are experiencing a profound sense of your absence. Whether it's suffering or confusion, it's unanswered prayers, it's their life not playing out as they'd hoped. Would you remind them through your word and in coming near that that does not mean that you don't love them, but rather the opposite is true. That you love them so much that you're co-opting all of this, working together all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. That somehow you're using these moments as a forge to test and build and refine them, to melt them down in order to build them right back up again, removing impurities in the process. And I want to pray, Lord, that there would be a growing desire amongst your people to seek you, not to take you for granted the same way that leads to spouses walking away from a marriage, but rather instead to seek you, to become better lovers, lovers of God, lovers of our neighbors, lovers of this world. Teach us to seek and help us to become the kind of people that you have envisaged for us for all eternity. People that look like Jesus, made ready with a moral shift and a vision for doing your work in the world. Would you help forge us for every day and every minute of our lives until the moment we stand before you face to face? For those who are struggling to see, would you give them that final vision? Would you give them that hope and that longing? And would you turn their face to you in prayer? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks very much.